This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell, as today's guest reminds us. In 1920, black farmers in the U.S. owned about 15 million acres of land. By 2017, they owned around 4.6 million acres. The black farmer has been disappearing from the American landscape, but there was still a place not far from Chicago that remained Again, as our guest points out today, one of the few places black landowners could gain a foothold in Illinois, in part because this land was passed over by white settlers who presumed its sandy soils were worthless. Through trial and error, they found what could survive the sandy soil growing specialty crops like okra, collards, peas, and watermelons. Pembroke, Illinois was founded by a former slave during the Civil War. He sold off parcels of land to other former slaves and used that money to fund the Underground Railroad, helping even more to become free. It became a haven for those who, after the war, would flee the Jim Crow South. While the farmers were able to eke out a living selling produce to markets throughout Kankakee County and in Chicago, things were always tough for black farmers who faced discrimination when it came to access to capital and loans. They toughed it out with second-hand farming equipment, but a single year's drought could mean losing their land, and many did. Still, on thousands of acres, they would freely pick wild fruit, run small subsistence farms, enjoy horseback riding, as well as living off the land through hunting. However, conservationists now want to change the area into a nature preserve. Sure, the county board has consistently voted against proposals, for the preserve made by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, but that doesn't stop private conservationists and organizations from going ahead with their plan without local Democratic approval, including the Nature Conservancy, an Arlington, Virginia-based organization that already controls 125 million acres of land globally. It seems these private entities came down and bought up hundreds of small parcels of land whose owners had gone into tax delinquency. They then bought up the land and surrounded an area the local community depended on for a disappearing way of life, surrounded that area with barbed wire. The private conservation conservationists have been even forbidden horseback riding on the property while allowing cross-country skiing, which is not as popular with black cowboys. On top of all that, the new owners of the land pay far less in taxes, down from $600 a year, around that, for the old owners to less than 20 bucks a year for the private conservationists. To make matters even more confusing, while a local mayor opposed to the nature preserve is concerned how this might affect his impoverished town's revenue, he seems to be a developer himself, which has given some the perception of a conflict of interest. Meanwhile, the board president of the Community Development Corporation, working with those who want the preserve, fearing the land could be lost to huge agricultural operations or realtors, who have recently been buying up the land in the area, they also seem to have a conflict of interest. We'll try to untangle the many parts of the complicated story on conservation, development, poverty, and the history of black farming in a few when we speak with Tony Briscoe, who wrote the ProPublica piece, Conservationists See Rare Nature Sanctuaries, Black Farmers, see a legacy bought out from under them. Tony is a reporter for ProPublica. He previously worked at the Chicago Tribune as an environmental reporter, writing extensively about issues facing the Great Lakes and the impacts of climate change in the Midwest. His reporting on the Illinois on Illinois EPA's environmental justice program revealed lapses in state outreach efforts to 
low-income and minority communities, leading to reform in community engagement practices. You can follow Tony on Twitter at underscore Tony Briscoe, B-R-I-S-C-O-E. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. It's Wednesday, which means producing today's show is Richard Norwood. A week from today, Richard, is our final live show of 2021. What's new Ooh. by you? How are you wrapping up your year? I'm doing well. Uh, not a whole lot. It was a little chilly in here today. Very chilly in here. <laughs> Someone forgot to leave the heater on. I know, I know. I was supposed to come over here last night and feed Mel. I did not feed the feral cat outside. Somebody else did downstairs, so I didn't have the opportunity to turn the furnace on here. And when I got in, the temperature was 54. Yes, it was. It was very cold in here. It got up to 64 before the show started, but not very good. Are you going to be running the space heater today? I am. Are you already? Yes, uh, well, I don't. I turn it off for when I'm speaking, but when we get done, I'll turn it back <laughs> on. Turn it right back on. <laughs> so who knew that 2021 would actually suck more than 2020? You might be thinking... No way. 2020 was worse. But you'd be wrong. Through January 1st, 2021, a little less than 2 million people had died from COVID-19, which is bad. 1.9 million people dying from COVID-19. That's awful. But so far in 2021, around the world, there have been over 3,200,000 deaths, which is far worse than 2020. Of course, both numbers are likely far fewer from the uh, far fewer deaths from the pandemic that actually occurred with many analyses stating that the global total of covid deaths is likely well over a million more than the current count of five and a quarter million deaths with so many poor countries and so much the african continent unvaccinated there's no guarantee that 2022 will be any better either but more importantly than any of that horror, Richard? Please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what did the oracle just reveal to you? I like just being in there, as if the moment <laughs> just occurred moments ago. I just saw the oracle, and she just told me, just made a revelation to me. And that revelation is, Richard is rubbing his hands together because he's so freaking cold. <laughs> The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff rings down the curtain on twenty. 21. I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be Jeff brings down the curtain on 2021, but it says here Jeff rings down the curtain on 2021. Maybe that curtain has rings or makes a noise. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Tony. It's Tuesday, so we're reading your email sent to chuck at thisishell.com. <clears throat> yes, sir? It's Wednesday. Wednesday. I knew there was going to be one leftover one in here. Thank you. Richard, you are on top of it. You're actually listening to me. 
Thank you very much. It's Wednesday, so we're reading your email. Email sent to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com with your guest and topic suggestions and whatever else you want to tell us about the show. If we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show, we'll thank you on air during the interview for your suggestion. As we will be playing our 10 favorite shows or interviews from 2021 during the final two weeks of the year while we take time off for the holidays, we are also asking what is or are your favorite interviews or shows that you heard on This Is Hell this year. Again, if we play your suggestion during our best of shows, we will thank you personally on air. And we did get a guest suggestion from Kale. Years ago, someone named Kale won the question from hell, and I'm wondering if this is the same Kale. The question from hell uh, asked, uh, that question from hell asked listeners to design the flag for the next revolution. Kale, if it's the same Kale, sent an image of a red flag, but instead of a hammer and sickle, it had a computer keyboard crossed with a spatula for flipping burgers, which is brilliant, and we still got to get those flags made. It'd be great to have one flapping out front on a regular basis. Kale, but maybe not the same Kale, writes, Hey, Chuck, Alex, and producers du jour. I didn't find any interviews with Pascal Robert at thisishell.com. He's been a contributor at Black Agenda Report off and on for a long time. He has a recent article in Newsweek that gets into the Glenn Ford-esque black misleadership class, breaking it down for the non-Black Agenda Report reader. Kale then provides a link to the Newsweek article from November 23rd. A black political elite serving corporate interests in is misrepresenting our community. Kale adds, as an aside, it might be interesting to ask him about the editing process at Newsweek compared to Black Agenda Report. Thanks, Kale, for the guest suggestion. Pascal starts his opinion piece by writing, One of the sad consequences of how our national media depicts black people in America is how it flattens black life. More often than not, when you see black people in the media, they are other, either millionaire athletes and entertainers or poor, dysfunctional people inclined to criminality or other underclass pathologies. That this class polarity is an illusion that erases the vast majority of black Americans is lost on many Americans whose concept of black America comes from rap music or their favorite sports figures. Kale, I've seen this article being shared a lot on social media, and I, too, immediately thought of the late, great Glenn Ford, founder of Black Agenda Report. So, yes, Kale, Pascal is on the list. Glenn, Glenn, by the way, once said of our show, this is hell's the perfect radio environment for those who want to make sense of the world. Glenn passed away in June, which is yet another reason 2021 really sucked. We got another guest suggestion from Phil. Phil writes, hi, Chuck. I'd like to suggest Lori Lou Freshwater as a guest. She wrote an article on her family's and other residents poisoning and a cover-up at Camp Lejeune by the military. She is currently working on a book on the history of the military-industrial complex and the widespread environmental damage caused by the Department of Defense. Phil uh, then sends a link to the Pacific Standard article, What Happened at Camp Lejeune? I grew up drinking and bathing in the toxic waters around a military base in North Carolina. 30 years later, I went back to investigate. Phil then continues, since this is hell is not the media, uh, could you speak with her about the poisoning of the people of Hawaii from the leaking military fuel tanks at Red Hill into the aquifer while the media is talking about snow in Hawaii? So you may be wondering... Why Phil mentions Hawaii when Camp Lejeune is in North Carolina, 
on Lori Lou Freshwater's Twitter feed. Uh, follow Lori Lou on Twitter at Lou Freshwater. She shares a press release from the Hawaii Department of Health that states the Hawaii Department of Health is issuing an order to the United States Navy to suspend operations at the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility, take measures to treat contaminated drinking water at the Red Hill shaft, and safely remove fuel from the 20 underground storage tanks at Red Hill. So Phil proves yet again this is not the media, this is hell, or at least I thought so because I had not heard this story or read about it until Phil contacted us. However, yesterday the story didn't make it at ABC's website and CNN ran the story. Hawaii health officials order Navy to clean up contaminated drinking water after families are forced out of their homes. Usually, establishment media does not like reporting on the world's greatest contributor to greenhouse gases, the U.S. military, and its horrible environmental record. However, the story is about how military families are being affected, and that is definitely something the establishment media covers, the impact on military families. That said, Phil, we are fascinated by Lisa Liu, sorry, Lori Liu Freshwater's investigation into Camp Lejeune and how the U.S. military is poisoning the water around the base, so yes. Lisa Liu, is it Lisa Liu or Lori Liu? I'm already forgetting. Uh, She's on the list. We also received kind words of appreciation from Eliza. Eliza writes, Dear Chuck, I was recommended This Is Hell by a friend of mine a few weeks ago. I've been listening since and loving the show. With the onslaught of liberal corporate media everywhere in my life, it's nice to hear a show that, as you always say, puts people over profits. The guests you have on are brilliant, and you are a fantastic interviewer that really seems to get at the heart of your guests' writing. I feel like in just the few weeks I have been listening, I have learned so much. I just started supporting you all on Patreon. Keep up all the good work, Eliza. Thank you so much, Eliza. We truly appreciate the kind words. And if you want to send us kind words or tragic stories, send it all to Chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, black farmers and the nature preserve that threatens their way of life. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what did the Oracle just reveal to you? What did the Oracle just reveal to you? And we'll have more of what you are writing us here at This Is Hell, including a listener who has shared their favorite interviews they have heard so far on the show this year. And another listener has, in fact, sent us a horrible, awful, tragic story that reveals so much about what is wrong with our world today. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is hell only 60 miles south of Chicago, where we are right now. A controversy is taking place between black farmers and a nature preserve. The area could eventually include over 12,000 acres of land that have been used for the last century and a half as a refuge for former slaves who worked the tough land to eke out a living. The locals and their elected representatives are against the idea, but none of that matters when private conservationists, unaccountable to democracy, are behind the project with the help of federal authorities. Here to help us untangle this controversy, Tony Briscoe wrote the ProPublica piece, Conservationists See Rare Nature Sanctuaries, Black Farmers See a Legacy Bought Out from Under Them. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tony. Thanks so much, Chuck. You can follow Tony on Twitter 
at underscore Tony Briscoe. That's B-R-I-S-C-O-E. You start by writing the Sweet Farm Savannah Land and Water Reserve in the heart of Pembroke Township, Illinois, offers a glimpse into what much of the area looked like before European settlers drained swamps and cleared forests to grow corn and soybeans. At least 18 threatened or endangered plant and animal species, including the ornate box turtle and regal fritillary butterfly (laughs) have been cited here mature oaks tower over verdant fields of clustered sedge and carolina whipgrass warbling songbirds and buzzing cicadas add a mellow soundtrack to the tranquil scene 60 miles south of chicago as i was saying this wildlife preserve is among nearly 2900 acres owned by private individuals and environmental groups most prominently the nature conservancy trying to establish a network of nature sanctuaries in kankakee county their efforts have overlapped with those of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which two decades ago put forward a plan to buy up and preserve thousands of acres of what conservationists consider a rare habitat, one that includes the nation's largest and most pristine concentration of sandy black oak savanna. So how unique is this area? Are there plenty of places just like this in the region, or is this one of few remaining pristine habitats of what this area looked like before European settlement? Because what I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to understand, why is this land so attractive from the view of the Nature Conservancy, private conservationists, as well as the state? Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, you know, certainly um, the most pristine and high quality concentration of black oak savanna, sandy black oak savanna in the country. And, you know, it's it's really, um, you know, native to um, areas of the Midwest, but, you know, a lot of, um, you know, places, as, as you mentioned, uh, in the Midwest um, have been, you know, the forests and uh, wild habitat have been cleared, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, three fourths of, of the state, um, you know, here in Illinois is, um, is farmland. And so uh, this is just a really rare example of a farming community that is ecologically diverse, but it also has uh, just in its own right compared to other just uh, natural places is very rare also. Um, It has these um, rare inland sand dunes, uh, you know, the same that you would kind of see at the Indiana dunes uh, right along Lake, uh, the Southern shore of Lake Michigan uh, was formed in the last ice age. Uh, from, you know, glaciers uh, going back and forth uh, across the Midwest uh, landscape and grounding, um, you know, rocks into fine grains of sand. Um, And you have this, you know, just really rare habitat of, you know, oak trees towering over prairie plants that you just really don't see um, in, you know, in many places in the state of Illinois. Um, And, you know, I think that one of the reasons why this area still exists uh, is because, you know, this area was passed over by European settlers. Uh, They thought that nothing could grow in these sandy soils. And so they kind of left it as is and they, uh, you know, homesteaded and farmed uh, other places. So uh, this place that, like you said, is 60 miles south of Chicago, right at the Indiana-Illinois border, uh, has this really rare, you know, sandy oak habitat that you really don't find anywhere else uh, or many other places in the country. But this is the best example of that. 
But and as you're pointing out, uh, it's but was skipped over by European settlers. You write founded by, by formerly enslaved people and later a haven for black Southerners fleeing racial violence during the Jim Crow era. Pembroke became renowned as a symbol of black emancipation and touted as one of the largest black farming communities north of the Mason-Dixon line. In its heyday, farmers and ranchers here not only raised their own food, but supplied fresh produce to Kankakee and Chicago. Today, a small number of black farmers are trying to hang on to what little they have left, while other parts of the township have struggled as well with loss of jobs, a declining population, and a crumbling village hall. Why do farmers have so little left, making it difficult to hang on? What's behind the economic downturn, not only just for the farmers and their, you know, and the farming sector, but for all of Pembroke? Yeah, it, it, this place has a really, really, really rich uh, history. Um, you know, uh, in in the you know mid 1800s, um, you know, the town founder, um, you know, arrived in this isolated place that was really you know um, isolated uh, because um, you know the the native inhabitants, uh, the Potawatomi, um, had ceded this land and and much of it um, you know due to treaty and had been relocated. Um, and as I mentioned, um, European settlers said, well, you know, nothing is going to grow here. So, you know, it, it remained very isolated even after that. Um, and so for, you know, runaway slaves, um, you know, who were traveling along, including the town's founder, uh, he stopped in this just really beautiful scenic place. Um, and uh, he, like, you know, other residents, um, you know, uh, or future residents, you know, they, they saw opportunity, they saw a chance for freedom and this, they saw a place um, to, um, to call their own that they could homestead. And so they parceled out this land and they really uh, grew crops where nothing was supposed to grow at all, uh, which is, uh, you know, somewhat, um, you know, they, they defied the odds. And, um, you know, but over the years, they've, they've really struggled, uh, you know, as you would imagine, subsisting farming um, because this uh, a lot of this soil is sandy. So they had to figure out through trial and error what could grow there. Um, and so you, you find a lot of vegetable farming, a lot of, you know, spices, specialty crops uh, that you can grow there that they uh, later sold, um, you know, at farmers markets and, uh, you know, um, you know, either in Chicago, Kankakee and other local markets. Uh, but, you know, like other, you know, uh, black farmers, um, you know, uh, they were really kind of behind the eight ball. They couldn't get access to conventional loans. And as a result, uh, you know, they often used outdated equipment um, or they farmed by hand. Um, you know, most of uh, the land uh, that they're working even today, they're farming without, you know, agricultural, I mean, uh, you know, uh, irrigation systems. Um, so they're dependent on rainfall. Um, they're not using commercial fertilizers or pesticides. So, uh, you know, as one farmer put it when, you know, I was you know, speaking to him, he said, you know, we're organic by default. A lot of people can't afford these kind of things. This is a community where the median income is, you know, $29,000, or median household income is $29,000 a year. And so as you can imagine, you know, many people um, uh, you know, landowners and farmers alike uh, began losing land over time. Um, uh, you know, it's, you know, po poverty essentially kind of beget poverty um, as they weren't able to get access to loans. And um, uh, they also didn't have uh, a lot of access um, to um, legal services, to draft wills, which really complicated the process of, you know, um, 
uh, leaving property to the next generation. So, you know, a lot of land was lost, um, you know, to that as well. And so what you see today in uh, Pembroke Township is, you know, a lot of people who have really fought hard to retain ownership of this land. Um, and it's really um, a small number of black farmers now who um, are just trying to kind of carry on the traditions um, and and hold on to this land that has been passed over, uh, you know, generation by generation. You write that adding to the opposition to the nature preserve in Pembroke is the cold, hard math of property taxes. Newer environmental designations and restrictions have allowed outside groups to receive tax breaks that local elected officials argue are eroding an already precarious tax base. I mean, you talk about how uh, one town, Hopkins, what's it called? Hopkins, I'm now forgetting the name. of Hopkins Park. Uh, Yeah, the only... uh... Their tax revenue for the entire year is $37,000. I mean, that's very, very low tax revenue. Uh, So who is behind the newer designations and restrictions that undermine the tax base necessary for providing public services and potentially raising taxes for those uh, still barely hanging on in Pembroke? Uh, Who's behind this? It's not the elected officials, so it doesn't seem like, because the mayor is definitely against it, and Hopkins Park. It seems like the board members are against it in uh, Kankakee County. So who is behind all these newer designations and restrictions? Yeah, so it's up to really any private landowner, and you have to see, well, who who owns the land there? Um, You know, over the years, as, you know, local residents have lost land, you know, outsiders have increasingly gained, um, you know, um, uh, large, large segments of the land. So, uh, you know, you have a lot of outside interests um, that are making big decisions. And uh, in recent years, uh, that's in the past 20 years, that's really been a lot of these outside conservation organizations or individuals who have purchased uh, land in hopes of, you know, uh, converting large segments of the community uh, into, um, you know, this network of nature sanctuaries. And so after they obtain ownership, um, they can implement, uh, you know, these these land restrictions that are permanent. Uh, it's called a conservation easement. So it's a legal agreement uh, that you can enter into either with the state of Illinois or through a private land trust. Um, and um, essentially what you're doing is you're signing away your property rights um, in exchange for tax breaks. So basically you're saying, I will never you know, build a house. I will never farm this land. I will never allow horses on this land um, you know, in perpetuity. And as a result, the property value goes down. You might be compensated for the lost property rights. And uh, because you can't do certain things on that land, um, you know, the, the, the value of the property greatly diminishes. And as a result, you don't have to pay as uh, much in taxes. Um, the thing is, is you know, when you're dealing with outsiders who own this land, they're making sweeping decisions that really don't affect them every day, right? They're affecting people who live there. And so, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, nature sanctuaries, I think a lot of people would say that, you know, this is something that is outwardly supposed to be a good thing, right? You're you're preserving, you know, natural features, rare, um, you know, um, uh, you know, species uh, that exists here and nowhere else. But at the same time, there really hasn't been very much in community involvement to say, well, these are traditions that we have carried on year after year after year, and um, we're not able to to do those things anymore. 
And I think it, it's twofold here in Pembroke because, like I said, this is one of the few uh, remaining black farming communities, black rural communities um, in the Midwest. And, you know, uh, they trace their history back to the Underground Railroad, which is pretty much as far back as you can go uh, for, you know, it's not like, you know, um, black communities have like, you know, it's, they're not native, but I mean, it's like, you know, this is as far back as really you can go. So, I mean, it, this is, this is their home. Um, and to see that lost way of life, um, you know, without being consulted at all, uh, you know, outside organizations, uh, most prominently the Nature Conservancy, are making sweeping decisions that affects them uh, without even sitting down at the table with a large number of residents. They've sat down with a few folks um, who have, you know, spoken to them, but not really with the community writ large. So is this the privatization of conservation? And with privatized con- cons- uh conservation does the community have any say in the matter is privatized conservation is that anti-democratic i would say a lot of people would say so right because i mean the the way the democracy works is that you know people get a chance to weigh in on things um you know um and you know uh, the government agency acts accordingly and so this started uh, actually in the mid 90s as a proposal for a national wildlife refuge, which really garnered a lot of, um, you know, resistance. People were worried, well, hey, you know, there's a lot of productive farmland here, um, namely, you know, rare black farmland that, you know, um, where are these farmers going to go if, they, if they're seeding their, their farmland? Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, as as things move forward, they held listening sessions. People pushed back. They had public commentary periods. Um, but as this kind of tension, you know, built and built and built, you know, it, it seems like the federal government took a step back, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that is, uh, and partner ag- agencies, the um, the Nature Conservancy. There's another group called the Friends of the Kankakee, um, uh, which is operating in the area. And uh, they took up essentially the mantle and was in constant contact with um, federal officials about, you know, purchasing land and for all intents and purposes, carrying out the, you know, the plans that they, that they wanted. So circumventing the process of really communicating um, with locals and having their opinions being heard, which uh, is extremely problematic because, you know, I mean, uh, you talk about marginalization. Really, that is the definition of marginalization. And you write that local residents have already seen what the future might hold. Most of the sites reserved for conservation ban long-standing local traditions like hunting and picking wild fruit, restrictions designed to remain in place forever, even if the land changes hands. In a community known for black cowboys, new conservation-minded owners barred horseback riding, but in a couple of instances protected the right to cross-country ski not a popular pastime in pembroke how much were the black farmers and cowboys and community in general in any way an environmental threat to the area without this becoming a nature preserve would the land just be developed in its unique habitat lost forever well you know it's it's an interesting question i think it's 
you know, I, I should say that, you know, I've talked with dozens and dozens of people, um, you know, down in Pembroke Township, and not one of them was opposed to conservation. Um, they're opposed to the tactics. Uh, they really wonder, you know, well, you know, if you're trying to preserve these, you know, uh, the rare natural areas that we have here, um, why, why does it take um, changing hands? Uh, why, why do you need to, to own it? Why do we need to implement permanent land restrictions? I mean, you can only imagine uh, if we took a spot in Chicago and said, you know, you can never, ever, ever, you know, uh, do X, Y, or Z here. People freak out when you say that you can't walk dogs through a park. Uh, for all intents and purposes uh, in Pembroke Township, um, you know, that's the same as riding horses for them. Um, they have an annual rodeo that is, you know, super popular there that, um, you know, is is the highlight really of, of, of their community. And people enjoy just taking horses through through the woods. Um, I um, was able to sit down and shadow um, a, a farmer down there who loves just walking the the, the um, natural areas and, and the historic trails that exist and and collecting wild herbs and, and fruits. And she makes different sauces out of them, um, different um, natural remedies. Um, and that's a part of, um, you know, the traditions that have been passed down and what she enjoys doing. So um, as more and more of this land is restricted, um, you know, that is something that they find problematic. Uh, but it also raises another question, which is this is uh, a historically disinvested community. There um, used to be a, um, a strip of businesses along, you know, Central Street and Main Street, but a lot of those buildings have fallen into disrepair. Um, you know, they've seen a lot of um, the same um, unfortunate issues that have happened in commercial corridors and a lot of black, uh, it, you know, communities uh, in Chicago. And, um, you know, if you're buying places as the Nature Conservancy has on um, their main street, you know, places that, you know, should, you know, it's one of the few places that they have access to utilities. So like you can get electricity, you can get um, water, you can connect to the sewer system. Um, you know, you're kind of limiting their um, economic development opportunity. Um, and so I think that uh, certain elected officials find that problematic to say, well, hey, this is, we desperately need tax revenue. Uh, this is a place without a grocery store, without a bank, um, without a pharmacy, within 52 square miles. That's how big this place is. And are you denying us an opportunity to have access to basic amenities? Um, for example, uh, the, there was, you know, a dollar store that was interested in one of the properties uh, owned by um, the, um, uh, the Nature Conservancy. And I guess they, that was left to a negotiation and essentially the dollar uh, store um, decided not to build there. Um, but, you know, that was a negotiation between one of the Main Street parcels and the Nature Conservancy. That's what confuses me. So is the Nature Conservancy in the business of real estate or development? If they're making having negotiations with a dollar store uh, of a parcel that is on one of the main drags in town, one of the only parts of the business district in town, are they acting as a developer or a realtor? Um, they're certainly acting as... as um, uh, you know, somebody who has a lot of properties, they have 
around 2000 um, acres of property. I want to say it's uh, more than 300 um, parcels that they, that they own there um, scattered across, um, you know, uh, this very big, uh, you know, community. And so, you know, one of the basic things that, you know, people are trying to be, uh, getting answers to is, well, what's the end game here? You have, you're buying on the Eastern edge of town, you're buying on our main street, you're buying here, you're buying there. And certain things, because they've drawn um, the ire of, you know, um, uh, locals and elected officials like buying on their main street, like buying on some of the few places that are served with utilities, um, you know, they, they've stopped doing that. Um, that's something that they stopped around uh, 2016, 2017, but they, they haven't turned those properties back back over. Um, so um, essentially they want, it, it sounds like they want to hold these properties in perpetuity, but it's not something that the Nature Conservancy has, um, you know, um, in, in the past, not, not necessarily in Pembroke, um, you know, sold properties. Um, they've also come into um, uh, under scrutiny for, you know, uh, real estate transactions with their own trustees and board members where they're saying, hey, we're going to, um, you know, purchase this land or impose these kind of land restrictions that are supposed to uh, prohibit development to save these rare features, but, um, you know, later ended up becoming home sites. Um, so, uh, <laughs> there's certainly um, a lot of power uh, through land ownership there and, and people are wary of, well, you know, how much in terms of acreage, where in the community do you want to buy? Um, we, you know, filed a number of public records requests to get access to emails sent from, you know, Nature Conservancy officials to federal um, f uh, officials with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and have actually gotten access to some of these maps, but this is something that they're communicating with the federal government and not necessarily even the people of Pembroke. You mentioned that much of Pembroke uh, consists of tiny, slender tracts of land, meaning the organization had to work on a much smaller scale to expand its footprint. Some of those tracts became available through public auctions of land lost due to unpaid taxes in Kankakee County. The Nature Conservancy said it would, has collected 201 deeds at tax sales, totaling 448 acres. It's not possible to determine the race of all the former owners of the forfeited land, but the population of Pembroke is predominantly black. Local residents and politicians say most of the owners affected by tax sales were black too. Because the tax sale properties tended to be small, those parcels made up less than one-fifth of the Conservancy's acreage in Kankakee County, according to the organization's own figures. But among local elected officials, the purchases raised questions about the ethics of buying land forfeited in financially distressed communities. How does buying back land and paying its back taxes in financially distressed areas, how does that impact the local economy? After all, isn't it good for everyone that they're paying taxes on the land? Isn't that good for the entire community? Certainly, um, you know, paying some taxes um, is very helpful to this community. Like you said, um, you know, uh, Hopkins Park, the only incorporated um, village um, within Pembroke Township, uh, the rest of which is uh, unincorporated, um, is in desperate need of, of tax revenue. Um, you know, it has a village hall uh, that the roof literally caved in. They were, you know, um, operating it out of a small trailer, uh, the village hall for a certain point. And um, uh, now they're actually in a, in a church. 
um, you know, operating its village hall, uh, you know, there. Um, the wastewater treatment plant needs, you know, more than a million dollars in repairs. Um, the issue with, you know, the taxes that, yes, um, you know, now some of this land, um, as the Nature Conservancy will say, you know, we've restored this, um, this land that we're buying to the tax rolls. We're paying taxes where no taxes were being paid previously. Um, the, the, the issue is equity. I think a lot of people feel with it. Um, you know, in many cases, they're buying this land, then they in, uh, impose these land restrictions, which has rubbed people the wrong way. But these land restrictions um, allow them to pay far less than what previous um, people have, you know, paid previous landowners, uh, what their tax obligation was. Um, so in one instance, uh, you know, there was a black farmer who forfeited uh, a three acre parcel of land um, after falling behind on uh, what was a $580 annual tax bill. Uh, the Nature Conservancy bought his land at tax sale at this auction um, and, uh, you know, obtained this state conservation de designation that now allows them to pay less than $20. Uh, so that's 96% less than what this farmer lost it for, um, which I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, um, it's one thing not to be able to pay $580 uh, dollars a year. It's another thing to not be able to pay $20 a year. And so they're paying less. Um, and by virtue of paying less in this tax district, they're shifting actually the tax burden onto those who are paying fully. Um, so other folks um, who have homes there, who own land there, who have not given up their rights. Um, and so I think that that is the issue at hand uh, and, you know, one that, you know, a lot of people uh, see as not fair. It's an, it's an issue, uh, equity issue. You mentioned Nature Conservancy emails with federal and state government officials. Those emails were obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request by ProPublica and examined for this story. Conservancy officials acknowledged the resistance from Pembroke uh, residents and elected officials, but minimized the situation as a quote-unquote melodrama in internal documents circulated in a 2016 email. In an email later that year, Fran Harty, then director of terrestrial conservation at the Nature Conservancy, urged Fish and Wildlife Services, U.S. Fish, uh, Fish and Wildlife Services officials, not to scrap the refuge plans despite community resistance. You quote Hardy writing, it is important that the United States Fish and Wildlife Services does not pull out altogether because it will feed the idea that all you have to do is throw a tantrum and Fish and Wildlife Services will pack up and leave. A melodrama, a tantrum. What do those words reveal to you about the Nature Conservancy's, or at least Hardy's, view of local concerns? Certainly. I mean, this is, um, I think we have to remember that the you know the nature conservancy which is the most prominent um uh conservation land buyer um you know in uh, pembroke township they're a charity um so this is a white cap organization um that comes to you know different communities and they say that hey we want to um you know do these um uh, you know work on certain projects that will you know help people and um you know in other communities they have taken advantage of tax breaks because they are a charitable organization um and you know they have outwardly told people you know that you know hey we're working with the community um we really are 
intent on listening to the concerns that people have there. And then when you see these internal emails that they have of this communication back and forth to federal officials calling uh, the concerns of, uh, you know, community members a tantrum, um, you know, it really starts to shed this in a different light. Um, and, you know, there was another email that we found also um, because as we discussed, this is a place that has seen, um, you know, its fair share of financial hardships. Um, you know, uh, Hardy, uh, the, the same official, um, had speculated how these financial hardships um, might actually favor the Nature Conservancy strategy. Um, he, you know, wrote an email saying, all it takes is two years of bad corn prices and it changes the chessboard. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when you see certain things, um, like that, it, it just really, the, the chessboard in this instance is a community of people who have been historically discriminated against, who have really, um, been up against, uh, uh, a litany of, uh, of issues and, um, you know, these are outsiders who are, you know, it, these emails seem uh, it, like this really just essentially goes over their head. And it just, you know, to I think that it really reemphasizes the idea that you need to sit down with members of the community uh, to to get that public input to make this more of a democratic process. Um, if you are if you do want to be a good neighbor. Um, and so, uh, to date, I, you know, we are not aware that that has happened, uh, where they are having, you know, community at large meetings, uh, they sat down with, uh, or they uh, sat down with certain elected officials and they have uh, a group of, uh, folks within the community who they talk to who are largely supportive. Um, but I think that you need the full gambit to really understand, um, you know, and to really make this you know network of nature sanctuaries that they want to to make that work uh for for all folks so were was the nature conservancy or other uh, private conservationists were they simply counting on the precarity of the farmers and their land so they would fall behind on their taxes in order to purchase the land at low prices was was this land targeted due to it being cheap because that sounds a lot like environmental racism as we discussed yesterday with a colleague of yours at ProPublica, Ava Cofford, on her article Poison uh, is in the Air, which is about areas near chemical processing plants that were bought up cheap to build these chemical processing plants in neighborhoods and communities of people of color who then have higher rates of cancer. So so what were it was is this a kind of environmental racism by targeting cheap land? I I would say that you know a, a lot of people would see it as environmental racism uh because uh you know this is you know something that cuts against what you know, all indications show that, that there's not been one elected official that represents this area that has supported this. Um, there was a referendum, um, you know, uh, that indicated that a lot of people did not want uh, these designated conservation areas and they did not want uh, the nature conservation uh, or, or the nature conservancy, you know, buying land uh, for conservation in this area. Um, you know, but a lot of these folks really were, were buying, you know, land against the wishes 
of the community year after year after year. And, um, you know, that was at tax sale. I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people who I spoke to in the community thought that these were predatory practices that, you know, they were going into this impoverished black community and, you know, were actively going to these tax sales um, to buy land, perhaps not from just, you know, black owners who have lost it, but this is a predominantly black community that had seen financial hardships and, and they're, you know, capitalizing on that, uh, by going to these tax sales where, you know, you have a ton of properties that come up because people are losing them due to tax sale. And in some instances, people are trying to get their property back because like I said, that, uh, you know, maybe their parents, you know, didn't, you know, draft up a will. So they need to wait for the title to clear. They have to wait for the land to be lost, unfortunately, and in, in, um, uh, due to back taxes. And, you know, this is maybe their first opportunity to bid on it. But it, it, it really is interesting because another one of the emails that really just blew my mind was, um, you know, uh, the Nature Conservancy, Fran Hardy, again, um, wrote an email to um, uh uh, a, a federal official with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, about uh, a 2015 tax sale um, in which he said, um, you know, I'll let you know um, how it goes. And, you know, the subject line was, you know, tax sale. And uh, it was uh, included in the email was a list of tax delinquent properties, uh, including many of which which were high, highlighted in yellow uh, that were owned by the um, then uh, you know, township uh, supervisor. So this was an elected official who they had been sitting down with um, to try and kind of work things out. And her properties, uh, th this was largely like wooded lots surrounding her home, uh, were on this list um, that they were discussing, perhaps in, uh, in terms of uh, acquiring this land. They have denied that they want to buy this land, um, you know, um, in a statement to me. And uh, the federal official who was sent to said he does not recall the conversation. Uh, but, you know, um, it certainly seems, uh, you know, a little bit shady. And um, I think that a lot of people, as I said, would consider, um, you know, buying land at tax sale for conservation activities um, a, a predatory practice. And it seems retaliatory to the supervisor who was opposed to the program, even though that she was working on working in negotiations with them. You write yeah. that, that not only does Fish and Wildlife have a working relationship with the Nature Conservancy, they also have a relationship with the Friends of the Kankakee, a group you were mentioning earlier, a nonprofit created by Marianne Hahn, the suburban woman who founded the Sweet Fern Savannah. The group's stated mission is to support the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Kankakee Wildlife Refuge. The 66 acres donated by Friends of the Kankakee turned the refuge from an idea to a reality. What will the United States Fish and Wildlife Service's role be in this privately owned nature preserve? Because that doesn't sound like it's privately owned if the United States uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has anything to do with the property. Well, you know, this is um, one of the biggest concerns I think that people have in the area, right, which is, you know, a private landowner um, can can buy up land and they can they can essentially, um, you know, donate it uh, to to whoever they want, um, including the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And that is what happened with the Friends of the Kankakee, um, despite, um, you know, the uh, large amount of uh, 
public resistance to the idea of this nature, uh, you know, this um, national wildlife refuge, uh, they began buying up land in the area. Now, the land I will note that uh, that they own and that they later donated to the um, Fish and Wildlife Service was in a neighboring county. It was right at the border. Um, uh, it's called Iroquois County. And um, but it raised the the specter of something else, which is, you know, what happens if all of this land um, that has been stitched together by by Marion Hahn as a private individual, by her group, the Friends of the Kankakee, and by the Nature Conservancy, what if their whole intention is to later turn this over to the federal government, uh, which is what people have outwardly said that they don't want all along? Um, this is a way of circumventing that that process. Um, you know, that that is an if and, you know, the um, the Fish and Wildlife Service says, you know, um, that's not something that, you know, they can say at this point. They've uh, held some listening sessions, including um, in Pembroke, uh, you know, this year. Uh, but I think that that is the overwhelming concern is just like, you know, is, is this a way for the federal government to go around the wishes of the community? And essentially say, well, hey, this land was donated to us by a private owner, which in this case, you know, is either the Nature Conservancy or Marion Hahn. You write outsiders are increasingly determining the future of the land. Over the years, commercial farmers and real estate speculators have purchased land lost or sold by Pembroke residents. In the past two decades, conservationists also took an interest in the area. So, and this is one of the concerns of the uh, board president of the Community De Development Corporation, that she's more concerned about big agriculture or realtors buying up this land and using it for their own wishes and own desires rather than having it become uh, protected by being a nature preserve. So why is this area now attractive to commercial farmers and real estate speculators? Well, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I think that outside interests have grown as, you know, local owners have lost land there. And so um, conservation organizations um, have been essentially the latest entrant, um, you know, um, in this, you know, uh, kind of market to to buy up considerable amounts of land. But, you know, certainly you've had outside farmers and outside uh, real estate speculators who have, you know, dabbled there also historically. Um, you know, it's it, one of the really interesting things of what has stymied this process. And you mentioned this earlier was the fact that Pembroke consists of, a, a, you know, a lot of really tiny slender parcels. You, you might have some that are less than an acre um, or thereabouts. Um, and a lot of that was due to, um, uh, you know, either, uh, you know, uh, well, there were a couple of uh, real estate partners, um, including one uh, who was outside of the community that um, essentially bought up large amounts of land and subdivided it in hopes of flipping it for profit. So he would buy this land, divide it up, sell it and market it to folks on Chicago South side um, as, you know, real estate pro or um, uh, as a vacation property or um, to other folks in the area who wanted to buy it, thereby making a profit for himself. And now because of that, um, you know, kind of, I think that a lot of people saw that as uh, uh, a predatory kind of practice or, you know, something that really didn't benefit the community. Um, because of that, that really has slowed down 
the, the Nature Conservancy and these other outside conservationists in their bid to buy up large amounts of land, which is very ironic in itself. You write antipathy has been especially intense in Hopkins Park because of the village's desperate need to reverse years of economic stagnation and disinvestment. The conflict pits the Nature Conservancy, which is a, in a 2019 tax filing, reported $1.1 billion in revenue against the mayor of a village that collected less than $37,000 in taxes for that year. Mayor Mark Hodge has led the chorus of naysayers who believe the Nature Conservancy moved too quickly to acquire land, undercutting local development plans along the way. And you quote Mayor Hodge saying, they bought property on our main and central streets when they own the property. That means a house can't go there, a business can't go there because they are not willing to relinquish it. That would be tax revenue that we would receive for any water, sewer, and other utilities. It's unfortunate. And you also quote him saying, it's obvious this is David and Goliath, the big guy trying to crush the small guy. So is this the big bad nature conservancy against the small guy developer? Because someone who just turned in, who just tuned in, who is sympathetic with nature conservations may, may want to automatically side with a big bad conservationist over Mayor Hodge, who is also a developer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's like you said, this is kind of a, a tangled knot. And, you know, the way that I approach the story is that, you know, really uh, everybody I found uh, essentially had some sort of agenda. And I don't think that Mayor Hodge was really uh, very, um, you know, he didn't really try and hide his. He says that he wants to see economic development for this community. It's a financially challenged community that is, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, a food desert because it has no grocery store, uh, you know, pharmacy desert because, you know, there's not one uh, and, you know, doesn't have access to a lot of basic services. Um, that other surrounding communities have or that, you know, a lot of folks uh, in the Chicago area might have access to. Um, and so he would like to see more of that. He would also like to see a major employer there, um, you know, somebody who can bring about jobs that would be a benefit. Um, and but, you know, certainly this, this is all, you know, really a gray area. Right. You know, I'm not saying that's not to diminish at all what the Nature Conservancy wants to do and what I think a lot of uh, you know, uh, Pembroke residents want, which is we want to preserve these areas, but in what way are you doing that? And so I think that that's really kind of the crux of the story right there is, you know, what are the conservation tactics in a financially challenged community? I don't think that we really discussed that enough, you know, um, uh, in a lot of places and, um, you know, you know, like Pembroke, uh, you know, you have this kind of thing of jobs versus environment. It doesn't necessarily need to be that. I think that, you know, the folks in Pembroke understand, uh, you know, how special the natural areas are there. Uh, they wonder, though, you know, do you have to impose um, these permanent land restrictions. I would like to ride my horse through here to enjoy these scenic areas. Um, do you have to, you know, um, accept, uh, you know, these um, tax breaks uh, that mean that you're, you as this, you know, multi-billion dollar organization are contributing less to our community that desperately needs it. Uh, as I mentioned, there's, you know, the, the villages, the village hall is literally, the roof has literally collapsed in. The wastewater plant, um, in all likelihood, uh, one of their lagoons that holds wastewater uh, might have a tear in it, which 
threatens, you know, local drinking water, which, you know, that, you know, they, they get their water from wells there. Um, you know, you have um, a, a former school building, uh, you know, uh, George Washington Carver, uh, you know, elementary school, uh, which is completely shuttered and uh, has been kind of reclaimed by shrubbery and brush and um, is somewhat of an eyesore and really sad for residents to see. Uh, this is a place that needs resources and that doesn't come without tax revenue. So I think that you can kind of understand where, you know, uh, Mayor Hodge is coming from. And I think that you can also understand uh, from an I idealist standpoint where the Nature Conservancy and where local residents are coming from too, which is that, yes, these this rare habitat deserves to be protected, but protected by whom and protected from what is the question. Um, I think a lot of residents also uh, quarrel with this idea that, you know, we have been the stewards of the land for all this, all these years. We're the reason why this community looks the way it does. Uh, whereas the rest of Illinois is, um, a lot of it is, you know, just clear cut, you know, farm fields of soy, soybeans and, uh, you know, cornfields. You know, our community is naturally beautiful and, and we're the ones who protected it for this long. Um, you know, there are threats from outsiders, which, you know, like I said, real estate developers um, and such like that. Um, but I think that there has to be somewhat of a middle ground. So what does viewing locals as a threat to nature say to you about the Nature Conservancy and Marianne Hahn and other private conservationists? Well, it's 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 just it's very strange uh, in that, um, you know, this is a place that for generations, people have ridden their horses through the forests and, and through the woods. Um, they farmed some some, um, you know, portion of this community for many generations. And now you have these outsiders who are saying, well, this was this land was never meant to be farmed. Uh, this, you know, these natural features, you know, horses could mess those up. Um, and, and you know, locals are, are wondering, well, wh why do these natural areas have to be so restrictive? Um, you know, you, uh, as, you know, Sharon White, the former township supervisor said, it's, you know, you, you go to, uh, you know, national parks all across the country where you can camp, uh, where you can do certain things. Uh, certainly, you know, I think that everybody can agree that uh, things like maybe riding um, ATVs and other kind of, you know, vehicles, that, that could probably pose a threat. Uh, but, you know, could you make more accommodations for local traditions? Um, I think that that's an open question, but you really don't find out unless you sit down and, and go to the table with the people who live there. And why hasn't that happened in 20 years? You also write the Nature Conservancy has worked with the Black Oak Center for Sustainable Renewable Living, a nonprofit with the goal of reclaiming a thousand acres in Pembroke for black farmers, letting its apprentices farm on portions of conservancy land at no cost. Most recently, following questions from ProPublica about its activities in the township, the Conservancy said it had assigned two top officials who specialize in diversity and equity to work with the Illinois team in Pembroke. There also will be a review of our interactions with the community in Pembroke township and the village of Hopkins Park, according to Nature Conservancy. So 
could this, despite all of the obstacles, all of the problems, uh, all of the competing uh, priorities of different or- different people and different organizations, could this be a groundbreaking new way in which the Nature Conservancy functions with local communities? Is there potential for change throughout conservation when it comes to considering any disruption to local culture and conserving ways of living that are not destructive but live with nature? I, I certainly think and I, and I hope uh, that um, there, there is that potential. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that it really starts um, through tangible, concrete action, which I don't think that we have seen yet. Um, you know, from what I've understood, uh, you know, Mayor Hodge, the mayor of um, Hopkins Park, uh, had a meet and greet with one of those top officials that you mentioned. Um, you know, where those conversations have gone in terms of uh, you know, uh, the, the actions that they will take, I think, are yet to be seen. Um, the, the question is, you know, is the, um, is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which now has funds to buy land there, um, are they going to work with community members to carry out something that everybody would appreciate? Um, and would you know, uh, is the, the Nature Conservancy sincere about, um, you know, doing something that the majority of the community would appreciate? I think to this point, um, it's been an open question of, well, hey, we have this great idea for your community, but I don't think that they expected uh, community members to say no. And so what happens when a Black farming community says no to an idea of, you know, uh, against, you know, uh, this kind of wealthy and powerful nonprofit. Um, I think that we've kind of seen that, you know, things are slowly moving forward in the direction of what the nonprofit wants anyway. Uh, And so, um, you know, it's been a little while since the Nature Conservancy has bought land there. I think the last purchase was um, November 2020. Uh, but is that in reaction to um, bad press that they've got, bad publicity, or um, some of the uh, public resistance? Um, I, I think that only time will tell, really. One last question for you, Tony. We've been spoke, speaking with Tony Briscoe, who wrote the ProPublica piece, Conservationists See Rare Nature Sanctuaries, Black Farmers See a Legacy, Bought Out from Under Them. You can follow Tony on Twitter at underscore Tony Briscoe. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What happens to conservation? What happens to nature conservation when it becomes anti or undemocratic? Well, you know, I I think that what you see is something that borders on, you know, I think that the article and the trend that you have seen um, in Pembroke and other communities, I've gotten a lot of response that, you know, this oddly feels like gentrification. This oddly feels somewhat like uh, environmental colonialism. Um, And so, you know, you have instances uh, where, you know, this happens all all the time, where it's like, you know, you have outside um, interests, even if they're well-intended, that are trying to carry out their vision for a community that might be 
financially distressed or historically marginalized. Um, and because they didn't do their due diligence and sitting down with the public, they, they end up doing more harm than good in the view of the, the communities that they interact in. Uh, and so the only way to, to counteract that is to genuinely you know, sit down um, in good faith with the community and to, to, to listen and to uh, you know, act off of the wishes of the community. Um, I think that you know, that's somewhat um, antithetical to, to private groups that don't have to do that. You know, government is somewhat used to that, even if uh, in many cases it's, um, you know, a lot of people criticize it for, you know, government agencies for just having listening sessions, but at least you have listening sessions. That's the only way, um, you know, uh, to ensure that people are, are being heard. So I think that, you know, you really have to ask yourself if you're one of these private organizations or an individual who's thinking about carrying out, you know, certain things like this is what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's a very important question that people should be asking when they're trying to determine how land is going to be developed or not developed in your area. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed your article, and it does make people make made me consider, you know, what side am I on in this? So, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tony, for being on our show today. Thank you, Chuck. You take care. Take care. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. If that conversation with Tony Briscoe on the privatization of nature conservation was in some way enlightening to you to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding that you may have had, let's say, about the Nature Conservancy, or made you feel more educated or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, Share your show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported this is hell. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? Ah, see the Matrix, uh, pro, you know, all that promotion for the Matrix. I even got to Alex. Look at that. Aaron D. Oh, we did him already. Benjamin C. answers... Greedo shot first. <laughs> Guido shot first. That's a good one. <laughs> Do you remember who Greedo is? Guido's from, uh, you know, uh, Godfather. Nope. No? It's Greedo. Oh, Greedo. Oh, is that from Star Wars? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, now I don't like that answer. Okay, move along. Our Jeffrey answers that today is auspicious for launching a war against bathroom grime and mildew. <laughs> okay. Alex B. answers, she looked up from the bowl and said, yikes, dude. <laughs> I don't know what that's a reference to. I don't know either, except for the Oracle is very upset about what they've seen. <laughs> Kevin O. answers, the solitary man is always accompanied. <laughs> okay. That's some deep thinking there. Walter C. answers, stop wasting time talking with the Sphinx about magnets. <laughs> Instead, talk to me. I'm the Oracle. What did the Oracle just reveal to you? Fergus F. answers that 2022 is going to be great. I had And I had to pay extra for her to say it, though. <laughs> I'm sure you did. That's how psychics work. 
Krimsky Crackers answers, I can't tell you, but it sure felt fine. <laughs> All right. Greg M. has a spoiler alert. <laughs> Bruce Willis is dead throughout the Sixth Sense. <laughs> wow, the Oracle's not very good there. Just catching up on their old VCR tapes. <laughs> what did the Oracle just reveal to you? Chris C. answers, the Oracle revealed himself and asked for Oracle sex. Oh, How rude. Oh, wow. Ladio answers, Ouija boards never lie, but that FN eight ball is ruining it for us all. Long live Jambi. People are really, really down on the eight ball. Do you know who Jambi is? Yes, Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> yes. That would be Phil Hartman playing the amazing Swamby Jambi. Any more? Two more. What did the Oracle just reveal to you? Warren L. answers, That I'm too old for this. <laughs> Pete V answers, a great oatmeal cookie recipe. <laughs> That's what the Oracle revealed to Pete? I want to get that recipe. Coming to you soon. <laughs> Any more? Neil C answers, me too. I'm not sure if that's in reference to... <laughs> me too? Me too, or, or a great oatmeal cookie recipe. I'm <laughs> not too sure either. Is that all we got? That's all we have for today. Alrighty, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff rings down the curtain on 2021. Pretty sure that's brings down the curtain on 2021, unless his curtains ring. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Email us, message us via Facebook, or tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and or topic suggestions. Or if you'd like to tell us what your favorite interviews or shows were this year on This Is Hell, or just share your thoughts on the show. And if you do any of that, we'll likely read whatever you have to say on air. Joel in Chattanooga, Tennessee, emailed us writing, Hi, Chuck. You asked for folks to list their favorite shows from the past year. Once I got started reviewing them, I realized how many great shows there were in the past year. Here's my list. There could have been more. Best, Joel. Joel then offers, let's see, 21 interviews that made his favorites list for 2021. Now, we only need 10 to fill the final two weeks of 2021. But quickly, here's Joel's list. Border Walls in the Climate Crisis with Nick Buxton. Free People of Color in the Antebellum South with Warren Eugene Miltier Jr. Inside the Pandora Papers with Michael Hudson. The Politics of Disinformation with Joseph Bernstein. Racism, Medical Inequality, and Black Health with Ann Pollock. The Alamo and Battles Over U.S. History with Chris Tomlinson, Planning a Democratic Economy with Robin Hanel, U.S. Sanctions and Vaccine Imperialism with Cole Stangler, Gun Laws and Black America with Carol Anderson, Melur and Standing Rock with Jacqueline Keeler, Colonial Violence in Sheikh Jarrah with Sarah Amoud, Public Assistance State Surveillance with Spencer Hedworth, The Idea of Whiteness with Robert P. Baird, What Do We Do with... MMT with James K. Galbraith, Mass Shooter Society with Seamus McGraw, Growth Carbon Death with Ben Ehrenreich, Biden and the Imperial Past with Andrew Basevich, 30 Years of War Against Iraq with Kathy Kelly, 
Coloniality and Black Citizenship with Sabello J. Inlovu Gacheni, and Fascism and Liberal Democracy with Robert Kavoris. Which reminds me of what we have covered here on This Is Hell in 2021 and how often we have been fortunate enough to have guests on the show who do enlighten us and expand our political imagination. So thanks, Joel, for reminding me. And now the tragic story we warned you about earlier. We got an email from Brian in Bangor, Maine, who has written to us in the past. Brian writes, Dear Chuck and the This Is Hell crew, First of all, thank you for your important work. I'm writing to you as a follow-up in my email on July 26th about homelessness. Here in Bangor, Maine, we had a tragic fire on Sunday, December 5th that killed three people and injured two others. The occupants of the home were unhoused people who had taken refuge inside the building to try and remain warm. It was around 16 degrees Fahrenheit on Sunday. A Bangor Daily News article noted that they were living at an encampment that had been swept on Wednesday, December 1st by the city prior to the fire that took their lives. The building they occupied for warmth was an abandoned, condemned building that was owned by a mortgage company based in Texas that bought the property in October of 2017. The property has been condemned since March of 2017. It has been two decades, it has seen two decades of code violations that span as far back as 1997. This tragic story is another example of cities valuing profits over people in this country and in the city of Bangor. To give you some further context, Penobscot County, Bangor is the county seat of Penobscot County, is preparing to explore using American Rescue Plan Act funds to expand and renovate the jail by more than double the current capacity. This is in the face of crime rates that have dropped by 45% in the county, rising overdose rate deaths in the entire state and an escalating homelessness crisis that has no end in sight. Throughout the country, we are seeing cities, counties, and states looking to use American Rescue Plan Act funds to expand renovate or build new jails while drug overdoses, homelessness, and overall precarity for people increases. As you've probably cited on your show numerous times, the richest have gotten enormously more wealthy during this pandemic, while the poor and working class have gotten only more precarious. Here in Bangor, Maine, a state representative noted that there are over 100 condemned and abandoned buildings in the city. But instead of working to provide people guaranteed affordable and quality housing, the county looks to expand its jail with American Rescue Plan Act funds, and the city runs off a a homeless encampment in the name of safety. The deadly effing irony. And they were doing that, that getting rid of that encampment because they believed that emergency vehicles couldn't get to the encampment. That was their excuse. So, Brian continues, I thought these intertwined stories would be of interest to you and your listeners. These tragedies are the fault of the system and conscious policy choices of people working in the system who value profits over people. I hope you're able to cover homelessness in a future episode. I know there is a lot of precarity going on in this world, so I understand why you may be unable. It could be possible to find someone here to discuss the issue if you want me to make those connections for you. I want to end by giving you the names and ages of the victims of this avoidable tragedy. Andrew Allen, 56 years old, Dylan Smith, 31, and Tim Tuttle, 28. Signed, Brian Bangermain. So to sum up Brian's email, 
in Maine, three unhoused human beings seek shelter because it's freezing outside and they could die from hypothermia. They find a condemned building abandoned for nearly five years that's been owned for most of that time by a Texas mortgage company, which has done nothing to improve the property, likely making it a fire hazard, and the people die from a fire. Meanwhile, local officials want to spend American Rescue Plan Act funds to expand the county jail despite a 45% drop in the crime rate. Apparently in Bangor, Maine, instead of rescuing unhoused Americans from a life on the streets, their plan for rescuing Americans is to throw them in jail. Brian, my apologies for not having had a guest on yet about homelessness since you wrote last in, in late July. We actually reached out to potential guests in early August before we went on summer break, but with so much happening since we got back, we completely dropped the ball on discussing homelessness, so my apologies. This is a tragic and illuminating story that touches on so many issues that lead to people being unhoused. Brian, if you wanted to connect us with activists you know in Bangor, Maine, or listeners, if you have any suggestions of guests to be on the show to discuss homelessness, please email us with your guest suggestion. And this time, we promise not to drop the ball like we did last summer. Richard, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Do we know yet? It'll be a random citizen off the street. (laughs) All right. And Jeff Dorchin doing a moment (laughs) of truth. So a random person and another random person. Thanks to today's guest, Tony Briscoe, who wrote the ProPublica piece, Conservationists See Rare Nature Sanctuaries, Black Farmers See a Legacy bought out from under them. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thank you, Richard, for producing. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>